Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus in in Luke so far is calling a community of people around him. And it's interesting to look at who he's called. If we, if we recap Luke 4 and Luke 5 to see who has Jesus called so far. In, in Luke 4, he calls a, a demon-possessed man. Right? So, so that's not exhibit A, who you might start to build a church around. He meets a demon-possessed man and he delivers him. And that's the sort of people Jesus is calling into community. And then at the end of Luke chapter 4, he heals the sick. It doesn't look to me that he's looking for perfect people. It doesn't look like he's, he's trying to find those who have got it all sorted and who, who know their theology really well or, and have you know, squeaky clean lives, never done anything wrong. He's not, it doesn't look like he's trying to find people like that to put in his community. And the next people he comes across at the start of Luke chapter 5 are fishermen. They're a bit rough around the edges. Okay, their language is probably a bit colorful. And uh, they might not keep their tax books correct. You never know what way these boys behave. They're, they're sort of rough. And they're just in the background in Luke chapter 5 at the start of the chapter. They're, they're, um, you know, they're out finishing off their night's fishing, coming in. Jesus is talking to a different crowd on the water's edge. The fishermen aren't gathering to Jesus. A crowd is gathering there in the background, but he turns and he calls them and he calls Peter. So he, he, he pulls in these rough fishermen. He then works with a leper in verses 12 to 16. Again, an outcast. These were people who were on the outside. They're on the margins of society. A leper did not even, was not even allowed to live within the confines of the village. The leper had to stay outside and live in a sort of colony of lepers outside the city. And they weren't allowed in. They were outcasts, outsiders, pushed to the margin. And Jesus calls those outsiders into his community. He then heals a guy who's paralyzed. And if you read in the Old Testament, you'll find the paralyzed people were not allowed into the temple under the Old Testament law. And this paralyzed guy can't even get into the house where Jesus is, and yet Jesus receives him and transforms him with his power and with his forgiveness. These are the outcasts of society. These are those who are on the fringe, who are not even on the fringe, they're beyond the fringe, and Jesus is calling them in. And now in this passage, he calls a tax collector. Now, Our tax collector is a guy called Levi, who I'm sure you know already is Matthew as well. 
Same guy, Levi here, Matthew, who then writes the Gospel of Matthew. That's here who we're talking about. And tax collectors, as you can expect, were held in the lowest esteem possible. And this guy, Levi, wasn't even a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus was. Later on in Luke's Gospel, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Uh, Levi is just a regular, low-level, sort of garden-variety tax collector. That's what he does. He works for the Romans. He's Jewish, but he works for the Romans and he would be hated by the, the Jewish people that lived in that town. And here again we see Jesus initiating, right? not just tolerating. We're going to talk a wee bit here about and, and contrast as we go on religious attitudes and Jesus' attitude. Jesus is not just tolerating Levi. It's not as if Levi tags around after the gang for a few days and then Jesus says, Ah, okay, you're in, you can come. Jesus initiates everything here. And he's the one who goes after this hated outcast of a man and shows him God's mercy. And it's a really controversial choice of person. And Jesus, I think, does it on purpose. You read in the Gospels, you read of lots of people that Jesus encounters, lots of people that he transforms and that he heals. But the Gospel writers are selective about what they record. And Luke here is selectively recording a bunch of people in these two chapters who are outcasts, who we would maybe in our worst moments look down our noses at a little bit. They haven't got it all together. They're a mess. They're this, they're that. Jesus is grabbing those people and he is pulling them in to community with himself. And we read that Levi left everything. Don't underestimate that. Levi was the richest of the apostles. Definitely. Okay. He was the richest of the lot. He was well paid. Um, he, he creamed off lots of extra money for himself. He ripped people off. And he was, he was definitely the richest of the 12 apostles. When he left everything, he had it made. Keep on working with Rome. Keep on doing what you're doing and you'll never have any financial strain in your life, Levi. Just keep on ripping people off. And he left all of that. And he's not like the fishermen. Because the fishermen who we read about at the start of Luke 5, who left everything, they still owned those boats. Because we read of them using the boats again. We read of them going back to fishing at the end of John's gospel. So they, they, they prioritize Jesus above everything else. But they still, those, those things were still there. But for Levi, once you go to Rome and you tell them, I'm not going to collect taxes for you anymore, you're not going to go back six months later and say, I've changed my mind. So he really is making a huge commitment here by leaving that behind and going to follow Jesus. And he didn't do it in a sort of a grumbly, moany way. You know, oh, all right then, you know, I'll leave this behind and follow you. Um, some Christians, like, just, you know, turn that frown upside down. You need to smile a wee bit more. Levi celebrates. As soon as he has left that behind and decided to follow Jesus, he has a banquet. He has a party at his house. It's the first party of many in the Gospel of Luke. And he invites a whole crowd of tax collectors to come to the party. Now, Jesse Ryle wrote a long time ago, he was Bishop of, of Liverpool, bless him, 
And uh, he wrote, a converted person will not wish to go to heaven alone. Uh, Once you've experienced the grace of God, it is instinctive to want to share that with others. And he immediately opens up his house, invites his friends over. And the only friends he had were, careful with my choice of words here, like, but they were uh, unpleasant outcasts just like him. He would not have had any neighbors who wanted to spend time with him, any mates among the Jewish society. It was just him and the other tax collectors. Those were his friends. And he invited them all to the house and threw a party for Jesus. And there's something instructive in that as well. A good quote I read this week, I can't remember who it was from. Jesus isn't calling us to leave our neighbor. He is calling us to love our neighbor. So whenever Levi gets born again, gets transformed, encounters Jesus and his grace, Levi does not then cut off ties with all the people that he knows. Okay? God does not call you to leave people. He calls you to love people. And Levi brings them together so that they can also encounter and meet Jesus. He goes to great lengths to do this. And it's a mess, okay? For the religious people, it's just a mess. Jesus there in the house and all of these, all of these tax collectors and sinners and rejected people. But Jesus is more than happy to hang out with them. I think it was Eugene Peterson said that, you know, remarked about the amazing condescension of God that he will come and is happy to be associated with us. <laughs> Quite happy. Doesn't Again, he's not just tolerating us. He loves being with humanity and with his people. And the response then is quite interesting after this. Jesus is at the meal. And if, again, if we review what's happened in Luke so far, he has delivered people from demons. The sick are healed. The fishermen have a great catch. The lepers cleanse. The paralyzed gets up and walks and has his sins forgiven. The tax collector is called. The sinners come for dinner with God. And the religious people complain. <laughs> uh, you just get this list of incredible things that are happening. And the religious people complain about who Jesus is having dinner with. In, in verse 30, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complain to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? <sighs> I love eating and drinking with sinners, just so you know. Um. If you were to complete that phrase, there's various things you might, you might put in. The Son of Man came. Why? To do what? Son of Man came to defeat the, the devil. The Son of Man came to forgive. The Son of Man came to, to declare, to preach the kingdom of God. There are three verses in Scripture that begin like this. In, in Mark chapter 10, we read that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's one of the things that Jesus said the Son of Man came to do. In Luke, a little bit later on, in the encounter with Zacchaeus in Luke 19, at the rate we're going, we'll all have gray hair by the time we actually get to Luke 19. 
The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I hold that thought because I'm going to come back to it. Jesus went looking for people. He went and pursued and looked for the lost. But the other one, which I think is class, is in Luke 7. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. It just sounds too simple, doesn't it? It sounds too, too basic. It's not glorious enough. We want angels and we want fireballs from heaven and we want all sorts of amazing things. And we read, he came eating and drinking. Just, I don't have it in my notes, but there's a, there's a wonderful little verse in Exodus where Moses uh, and the others are going up the mountain and they, and they follow this pathway up the mountain and they start to see uh, the presence of the Lord. And there's just this wee sort of almost random note there and it says, and they sat down and ate. That's just class. And this is not, you know, this is not me being some sort of food obsessive. This is me telling you that one of the most important things that Christians do is eat together and eat with sinners. So many times people eat in the presence of God. Sometimes we read about the Old Testament sacrificial system uh, and we maybe think, you know, what, what a waste of, of all of this produce, bringing, you know, bringing that to the temple and just burning it or whatever. But we don't sometimes realize that a sacrifice was made and then a meal was eaten. Once the people had made a sacrifice, they then ate what they brought in the presence of God. There's something so powerful about it. I remember saying to somebody one time, there's something supernatural happens when we eat food together. And they looked at me as if I'd lost the plot. But I, I really believe when we eat together and when we eat with sinners, we create a place where God can move and can work in people's lives. He came eating and drinking. Uh, Tim Chester has a, a brilliant little book called A Meal with Jesus. Uh, which I'll probably be dipping in and out of a fair bit as we, as we go through Luke. But Tim writes that Jesus' mission strategy was a long meal, stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Oh, it's too simple, isn't it? You know, there's, an, there's almost a disappointment. Oh, it's so simple. I want a secret. I want something that's, that's, a, that's a deep spiritual truth that only certain people can unlock. And it's like, no. He sat down with people around food. He did his evangelism around meals. And he did his discipleship around meals. And it's beautiful. And I hate the fact that we're limited right now at this point in history in terms of eating together. I don't know about you, but I will never ever come on a communion meal Sunday again thinking, oh, there's a lot of work to do to get this thing together. <laughs> I'd love to have a meal right now. I really would. Simple. Jesus' mission strategy, very simple. And in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus, you know, Jesus effectively gets himself killed because of who he eats with, you know. Sometimes the table manners in our house are, are not the best, but nobody dies. Uh, you know, Jesus, his table manners and his table fellowship, his, his, his people that were with him at the table, 
that caused the Pharisees to just rise up in anger against him because of who he was eating with. In fact, one person says about Luke's gospel that in most of Luke's gospel, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, on his way from a meal, eating a meal, or talking about a meal. Huge emphasis on this. You see, food connects us with people, connects us with memories. Every year, round about Christmas Eve, I call over at my mum's house and she gives me a box of goodies. And that's mince pies and a Christmas, it's a big box. Uh, It's mince pies and a Christmas cake and a Christmas pudding. And I just love it. Because everybody who makes that sort of stuff makes it their own way and no two of them are the same. And when I go into that first mince pie, I'm a child again. Food just evokes powerful memories for people. Food creates a a place where people are accepted. And Jesus did so much of his mission around food and around tables. And I would say without a shadow of a doubt, the most powerful conversation that I have had in the past year with somebody who is outside of the church happened out there Thursday week ago around a barbecue. And it was not in response to what I had just taught about. I very rarely have had powerful conversations with people who come up to me after I speak and and start to talk. But I've had some very powerful conversations just sitting around food with people and seeing how the conversation goes. How much more effective would we be if we kept our mission strategy so much simpler? Something to hold in mind as we hopefully at some stage come out of this this dark winter and uh, once again can open our homes and invite people in. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. You don't get accused of that unless you're fond of eating and drinking. So these outcasts are partying with Jesus and the the Pharisees come along and say, why are you eating and drinking with them? The two perspectives could not be more different. Jesus, on the one hand, sits with these people and eats with them. The Pharisees reject them completely. And Jesus does not advocate what they're doing. Jesus does not endorse it. He does not say that it's good whenever they are rejecting these people whose lives are messed up. Jesus does not commend them for it. It is, a, it is a completely unscriptural notion that Christians should completely withdraw from the rest of society and form little holy huddles and never actually mix with the world. That is not the gospel. How can Jesus be brought to people if we just hide in little caves? And one of the things that happens around a meal, I'm going to remind you of something that I've told you many times, um, is my favorite word, is that word there, reconcile. And it's my favorite word. You know where we're going if you've been around a while. It's my favorite word because in Latin, here's what it means. The re re means again, con means with, and sil means sit. So the word reconcile means to sit with again at a table. Right? It's not just a novel name for a church. It's a, it's a philosophy of mission and ministry to sit with people. Because once people are with you at a table, they are welcomed, they are family, they are safe, and you share life with them. And Jesus would, I think, love to just destroy a wee bit of middle class snootiness that is, a, is associated with Christianity. 
that we will not mix with the outcast. We have various reasons why we don't want to be around certain types of people. I don't think Jesus would have any time for that. And his response to the Pharisees is to basically say to them, I didn't come for you. <laughs> you know, I came for lots of reasons. I came to seek and save the lost and I, and I came to destroy the works of the devil and I came to give life and to give it in abundance, but I didn't come for you. I did not come for people who think they've got it all sorted. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I have not come to call the righteous. I just you know, Put that in layman's terms. Pharisees, religious people, anyone who thinks they've got it all sorted, I didn't come for you. I didn't come. I've got nothing for you. If you think you've got it all sorted, I've got nothing for you. And just while it's in my mind, can I tell you that that can happen to any of us where we begin the journey knowing that we don't have it all sorted. We come to Jesus. But after a few years of being around church, we can start to give the outsider the impression that we've got it all sorted. We can start to become religious, even in a, in a nice building with different music. We can still start to have religious attitudes that are obnoxious to the outcast and the outsider. I'm not here for you. You see, religious people cannot handle grace. And grace is what Jesus is showing here to the sinner, to the outcast. He uses the image of a doctor. A few weeks ago, I had to go to a doctor. I had a sore shoulder as everybody knows, because I talked about it that much. I had, to go to, I had to go and seek medical attention for the first time since I was 13. Um, and a lot of pride had to be dealt with in, in that uh, journey. But whenever you go to the doctor, you're, you're saying a few things. You're acknowledging, I'm not well. Something is wrong. And you're acknowledging, I need help. And I cannot help myself. I need somebody else to help me. And Jesus uses this illustration about those who are sick from sin. Sick from sin. That sin has caused a spiritual illness. And he says, those who realize they're ill and they need someone, that's who I have come for. I've not come for the people who think they don't need anything. He calls those who realize that they need help. Um, a guy called Robert Munger said that the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. <laughs> Are you worthy to join this fellowship? What's the one criteria? It's the realization that you are unworthy, <laughs> that you're unworthy, that you can't help yourself and that you need him. And the Pharisees' failure to actually come to Jesus is connected with the fact that repentance is very difficult for people who don't think they need to repent, who are convinced everything is sorted. You know, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I just want to leave you with the fact that he pursued people. And I've been challenged by this. As I've thought about this this week, um, I, I've... I've I've been challenged by this. I'm way too polite. 
Uh, and I will say to somebody, here, give me a shout if you want to grab a coffee sometime. And then I'll think I've done my bit. You know, I've left the door open there. Jesus went to Zacchaeus in Luke 19 and he didn't say, Zacchaeus, give us a shout sometime if you want to grab a bite to eat. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. <laughs> That's it. He pursued. He went after people. And I have this thing that I do where I make myself available, um, but I don't pursue enough. And I feel there are people at the minute who are, who are sort of in my sphere of influence and sphere of relationships, and I feel God's just poking me saying, I want you to pursue. I want you to actually actively pursue. Instead of offering, a, you know, the, contact me if you want to get a coffee, just flip it around and say, right, what night suits for you to meet at the church and we'll get a coffee. And pursue. Go after them. That's what Jesus did. He, he proactively went after people. We sometimes expect people to make this massive cultural leap into church. Think about a sinner. All right, that's maybe we're all sinners. We're all, or we all, we're all born again. We're, you know, but but think think about a person who is outside of Christ right now. Someone who who you would look at and say that that's a fairly extreme case of of uh, not wanting to be around Christians and not wanting to go to church. Not interested at all. Quite hostile to the to the church and to their own ideas about religion. Think about that person. Do you understand the massive leap for that person to walk in here on Sunday morning? Absolutely massive. Just a huge cultural leap to the point that on, on, on occasions I have sort of almost thought, I, I, I almost hope that person doesn't come on a Sunday morning because Sunday morning might be too much for them. <laughs> you know, it's too big a jump. And we sometimes expect the outcast, the outsider, to make that leap. But everything in the gospel that Jesus said to the disciples was, I am sending you. <laughs> I'm not asking you to send out invitations. I am sending you. You're the invitation. You need to make the cultural jump to the outcast and the outsider instead of expecting them to make it. You're the apostle. You're the sent one. They are not the sent ones. And we sometimes go fishing by sitting on the bank and hoping the fish will jump out and land on our laps instead of going after them. And Jesus wants us to go after people, pursue, to seek the lost, to seek them, to actually go after them. And, and, and religious people would sometimes fuss and they would say, oh, but their language is atrocious. We don't like being around people who talk like that. You know, it's, it's very very unpleasant and their jokes are, are very crude and, and crass and dirty and we don't want to be around people like that. And, and all these reasons why we don't want to go to the outcast. But Jesus went with it and he was quite comfortable with them. I'm sure when he had that meal at the tax collector's house, I'm sure there were a couple of bad words dropped. <laughs> because look at who Matthew invited. Look at all the tax collectors who were there and they weren't born again. They were just coming for a feed. I'm sure the language was a bit coarse. I'm sure some of them were comparing notes about how they defrauded people. Yeah? Jesus is quite happy with it. Um, 
you know, some some of the excuses we we give sometimes for not spending time with people, like we might be say, I don't I don't want to listen to that sort of language. I am utterly convinced that when the Bible talks to us about how we use our tongues, um, if there's a scale for how we can grieve God with our tongues, I'm convinced. I hate bad language, by the way, but I'm convinced bad language is about here, and gossip is up there, and slander and criticism, and tearing people apart. And Christians are really good at it. Yeah. So I, th- I think just saying that because somebody talks a certain way, I don't want to be with them. That's not, that's just, just get that out of your thinking. Learn to put up with it. And actually, I can tell you from experience that when you go on a journey for a while with people, you'll find their language can change in your presence and in the presence of God. Do not make excuses. One, one writer <clears throat> says that we need to be like Jesus. We need to spend enough time with sinners to ruin your reputation with religious people. I would love to be criticized for spending too much time with outcasts. I'd love that. That would be a moment of triumph and success if I heard that people were criticizing me because I hang out with the wrong crowd. (laughs) That's what we should be striving for if we're on mission with Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. When did you last hang out with somebody who would really offend a religious person? A good little question. Not to make you feel condemned, please. But a good little question every now and again is to think to yourself, when did I last eat with a sinner? When did I last invite a sinner for dinner? You know, When did I hang out with somebody that would just cause a religious person to have palpitations? Are we on mission with Jesus who came to seek and save the lost? Or are we creating little huddles? of safety for ourselves. The outcasts are in. I'm done. Let's pray and then we'll we'll sing with our masks on. <clears throat>